Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Welcome into the Tech Ed Podcast. I am Matt Kirkner, your host. We talk a lot on our podcast about all different aspects of, of technology, all different aspects of the economy. We talk about the gig economy. We talk a lot about the changing forces in the labor market. And as demand moves from maybe employers to employees and vice versa, we talk about that. Of course, with a name like the Tech Ed Podcast, we go deep on technology each and every week. Well, this week we have a guest that can talk very fluently about all three of those and so much more. Our guest for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast is Jason Radisson. Jason currently is the founder and CEO of Shift One, but as we are going to learn today, he has an extensive background in technology and a really fascinating way of taking all kinds of technologies into new markets. We are going to learn a ton over the course of this podcast. Jason, thank you so much for being with us. Matt, it's a real pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. You've got just an incredible entrepreneurial background uh, in software that you applied to Shift One, but we're going to talk all about that. But before we get into that in detail, I want to learn a little bit about your background and what brought you to the place that you're in now. You did some amazing work applying, of all things, airline processes and technology to the hospitality industry in Las Vegas. But tell us a little bit about uh, applying airline processes and technology to hospitality and how you took a technology that was ubiquitous in one market into a totally different market. Sometimes you're doing real primary research and, and developing systems that and technologies that have never been seen before in the world. For sure. Um, oftentimes you're taking a technology that works really good at solving a particular problem and you're matching it to a problem that hasn't seen that technology before. Um, and I think, you know, if I go back to... My experience in the casino industry, uh, I worked for a time for Gary Loveman at Harris Entertainment, which, uh, you know, we we bought Caesars Entertainment, we bought uh, Binion's Horseshoe and, and Jack Binion's properties, and we integrated those in. Fundamentally, at the core of that business was something like 12 algorithms that we used to optimize the business. They were really set to recognize where there were gaps, where we could get more business from individual customers that we had. And then we would invest disproportionately in those customers that had the most upside. And we really used that system and that approach um, to have phenomenal results in the casino industry. And at the time we bought Caesars Entertainment, we had twice the profitability per room. Uh, we had twice the profitability per customer that they did. And that's a you know big successful company. It wasn't that Caesar's Entertainment was doing something invalid. It was just they hadn't applied some of the technologies that were out there in the way they could be applied. Um, and and specifically, we call that stuff revenue management. And those were revenue management yield management systems. You know that American Airlines had really pioneered in the U.S. and had, had been around for I think at that point even we're talking in the early aughts. They'd been around probably for at least 10, 15 years. But there we were you know, uh, going up against multi-billion dollar companies that didn't have it at all. So I, you know, when I look at at the broader landscape, I often I'm thinking that, you know, where is there an amazing technology that exists that 
if we just put it into this industry, it would make such a difference. I love that. You know, I had a mentor for a long time who, who his, his line was the best ideas are stolen, right? <laughs> and he was he was actually a master of that. It's yeah. like it's you know, and my my line is always if I hear, if I hear a good idea, I'll give the provider of that idea credit for it three times, and then I'm just going to take it. And it's <laughs> right, take right. it as my own. But it is amazing the way the way that you you tee that up, how many different opportunities there are to take technologies from one space, put them to work in another. You make some really interesting points there. You know, on that topic of reinvesting and thinking through um, mindsets on technology, investing in human capital and so forth. I, I know you've got some really interesting observations oh, yeah. on how we integrate technology and human advancement and, and specific mindsets around that. Go into that for us a little bit. You know, if I look at the space that we're innovating in right now, um, you know, largely it's it's HR technology. And, you know, if you look at HR technology, a lot of people are using ERP systems or, or versions of ERP systems. And you can argue, you know, that's a lot of sort of what makes, you know, employee markets, makes, makes the labor market happen. Um, and there are even things, yield management is an example. Um, there are a lot of internet technologies that we're not even using in HR yet. You know, the mindset is really sort of being open to effect change. It's more that social engineering piece of now I got that technology. I know it works in this space because there's a company with 100 million users that's doing it. But it's not over in this space where there's an industry with 100 million users that's, you know, 10 years behind technologically. We founded the company Shift One. You know, um, us early team members were, were coming from the gig economy. You know, the companies that we worked for were extremely successful at least in, in growing very large businesses with, with millions of employees or independent contractors in the IC model. Um, you know, there were there were a lot of great technologies there. There was a lot of opportunity that was created, it made markets where markets didn't exist before in delivery and ride-sharing in some of these businesses. But I think there was a lot of unfulfilled promise in terms of really helping people to get ahead. Um, and, you know, I think as we look at labor markets, we really differentiate and we we have kind of this internal analysis that we're we're kind of constantly obsessing over in, in our company, where we look at all kind of the frontline labor segments. That's you know really our bread and butter, and we sort of have a perspective on each one and where the opportunities are and where the inefficiencies are, and that really guides how we then approach clients and how we approach uh, you know professionals and, and workers on our platform. When you think about the gig economy, and, and I've been predicting for a while that everything's going to move in that direction. Someday I'll get my ride home from work from an autonomous vehicle that just shows up and takes me home. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in that. But what are some of the challenges in the gig economy that you saw during these experiences and that you see in the market today? The challenges, it, it comes down to the supply of labor on a high level and, and sort of the first getting a platform up and running, uh, how you can even launch a decent service. It, it all comes down to your labor supply. Um, I think as you get deeper into it, you sort of look at, you know, how well is this platform really providing benefit for everybody, all the stakeholders? And I think the best platforms always do that really well. They, you know, they treat everybody well. They come up with really win-win solutions. Some of the things that, you know, I think are improvable and, and definitely, you know, we're doing differently in our company is, is we're employing people in a traditional model. We're, we're helping with benefits and, you know, um, there's more job security. We just, you know, are fundamentally trying to give people a more solid and, and reliable income source. Um, 
And I think, you know, it, it fits better also with the professional environment of manufacturing and logistics where we started our company. And now as we move into some of the travel engineering, field engineering roles, some of the robotics roles and, and some of the nursing roles that we're now doing that it, it, it you know, these are, these are really full-time, full-time plus um, occupations. And, and that's really what, what the workforce is looking for, you know, put another way, I guess, you know, I, I think there were some things in the gig economy that we could have done to take better care of the workers. And I think some of the notion of like, people are just looking for maximum flexibility. I think it's people are looking for a schedule that fits their lifestyle and their needs, you know, picking up kids and, you know, whether it's caring for family members or whatever, or, or meshing your schedule with your spouse's schedule. But fundamentally, I think people are looking for a good, you know, living wage. And um, I think that's also, you know, an area where we where we fall short in the gig economy. For sure. One of the most fascinating, fascinating conversations that you'll have. And I use Uber prolifically when I'm traveling. I absolutely love it. But I love chatting up the drivers, right? And getting to know their stories and, you know, and, and, and you get all kinds, right? Some of them are full-time workers in, in other economies or in other spaces within the economy. And they're, you know, driving after work or driving on a weekend because they can earn some extra money. There's others that like the flexibility to work around what, to your point, childcare questions or issues, or maybe taking care of a, of an older loved one, something like that. Uh, and then you have the people that, you know, are just, I've, I've talked to some of those drivers where they're like, yeah, you know, I, I'm a gamer and I do that for four hours a day. And then I come out and drive for four hours a day. And then I day trade for two hours a day and right, it kind of right. takes all kinds. But I think to your point, creating that repeatability and creating that reliability of a, of a paycheck and a job yeah. and benefits and all those kind of things. And we're seeing it in the stories that you read about with, uh, you know, whether it's labor organizations in certain spaces of the, of the gig economy and so on, it's going to be really, really fascinating to watch that roll out. You know, one of the things that we think about when we think about the gig economy is technology. You mentioned the 12 algorithms earlier in one of your other organizations, but what some people might be surprised to know is that that gig economy companies aren't necessarily the early adopters of technology, if I understand that correctly. Tell us if, if you agree and why that is. Take, for instance, you know, somebody who might be leaving a nursing program, you know, getting first licensing and certification. Um you know, helping to navigate whether or not uh, to go for a compact, uh, which states to be licensed in, whether or not to move, um, whether or not to seek travel jobs versus local jobs, whether to start on a per, per diem. Uh, those are those are all kinds of career decisions. And, you know, there's so many, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people in the country doing those roles, there's plenty of data to be able to give really good advice and, and, and sort of make really good predictions about the best path for somebody to, to, to take. And that I think, and if you look at the gig economy, like fundamentally, you know, getting somebody into a car is, is an optimization problem. It's a matching problem, but, you know, some of the more advanced and maybe longer term problems of, you know, what really would be the right career path for this particular worker you know, what kinds of opportunities should we be exposing her to today so that, you know, she can make better decisions maybe three or six months down the road. All of those kinds of systems, you know, aren't really widely distributed. So, uh, you know, as we think about our workforce and sort of providing those opportunities, those are the things we're trying to, to really kind of predict what the best path is for somebody, but then also what the best training is and what the best work 
opportunities are to expose them to. And, you know, if we do that right on the worker side, uh, on the trained professional side, then, um, you know, naturally it, it just benefits our clients, our, our corporate clients also. Well, Jason, you make the host's job easy because there's so many different things that I could go off on in terms of just the last answer that you shared with us. You know, one of the, I, I do a lot of public speaking on topics like artificial intelligence and machine learning and uh, and their application in education and in manufacturing. But one of the statistics that we throw out there all the time is that most companies only use about 12% of the data that's available to them and leave the other 88% to go to waste. And you talk about these 10,000 individuals in the vocation of nursing and, and all the data that's available to really kind of think about, you know, what do they value in a career? How can we best use their time? How can we make those jobs as filling for them? Um, how can we make them as, as lucrative if that's something that's important for them? Yes, it's a career. Yes, they're going to get paid, but they're dedicating their lives to the caring of other people. And I, I don't think we want to lose the importance of of that decision and the work that you're doing to try and make that more efficient, more effective and, and make their jobs more fulfilling and others, the jobs of others more fulfilling, really important. And, and that's where I want to take the discussion now. We've talked a little bit about your background, about some of your philosophies. And, and I know our audience is as eager to learn about Shift One as I am. So tell us what, you know, this new organization, relatively new company that you founded, what was the inspiration to found it? And, and what, how does the platform work? You've touched on it a few times, but let us understand what, what the experience sure. and what the value is. Absolutely. So the inspiration um, was, was literally to find the right first rung, first couple of rungs on the employment ladder for as broad a group in the economy as we could, and very broadly speaking for our Uber drivers. That's really where I was coming from. I was thinking about, you know, what are more structured jobs, you know, than driving a car, driving taxi, uh, passenger transportation, industrial jobs. Growing up, I had worked uh, manufacturing jobs uh, kind of throughout school. That's music to our ears. What kind of jobs in manufacturing? So everything from operating machines to... Um, uh, sales, um, everything in between. Awesome. I, I was uh, an intern uh, in high school during the summers and, and I worked after school. Um, the plant that I started with was American Saw and Manufacturing Company in East Longmeadow, Massachusetts, uh, which is, you know, it's changed ownership a couple of times, but uh, uh, just it was a great kind of thousand person family run business back in the day. You know, we talk all about on the uh, on the podcast about the amazing routes to amazing careers through manufacturing. That's again, oh, it, yeah. it could be an entire episode. But for our listeners who have heard that on the on the podcast before, um, you know, certainly Jason's background is is an example of that. And look at the cool tech stuff he's, he's yeah, doing there. Definitely. Um, but anyway, you know, the, that back to the inspiration, and it was really, it was really here. We have a population of drivers, and you know. With all the caveats we, we we've just been discussing, and you know, if they could be in a solid forty or fifty hour a week job, you know, with better wages, and you know, where they didn't have to run their car down, um, you know, it would be a real lifestyle improvement for so many people. So we really looked at you know where are those opportunities, and you know, we were looking at manufacturing, we we're looking at logistics, we we're sort of looking at you know, there's already starting to be a lot of innovation in logistics on the 3PL side and sort of fulfillment. And, you know, a lot of the movement to kind of last mile has, you know, and, and next day, same day delivery and all of those those kinds of trends more broadly in the economy. And we thought, you know, let's start there and let's see if we can build a platform to make that more efficient, 
Um, you know, let's take some of the kinds of playbooks and, you know, technologies that we've been working in these last 10 years and let's start applying them there and see, you know, see how that platform works and, and see what we can build. You know, and that was from there, um, the, the first place that I think we got, you know, a lot of just really great tech together um, and had a lot of great experiences was in hiring automation. And basically we built a system and an app where, you know, um, a worker could download or a candidate could download our app and in a couple of clicks get a job. And we took care of all of the employment, you know, sort of back office stuff was was all just a couple of clicks, happened automatically. We had different integrations. And so from the candidate experience, a couple of clicks and then tomorrow I'm working and this is a lot better job than I had. So that was really, that was sort of our, you know, we talk about MVPs. That was our MVP was let's get that experience into the market and let's see where it goes. And then, you know, we worked with some Fortune 50 companies uh, in that first year, just ramping up that service and helping them in some of their toughest markets. Um, we were, you know, working from everywhere from Northern California, Southern California, uh, Minneapolis for family reasons had, had been sort of a, a focal point as well. And um, it was really tough uh, in 2020, of course, with the riots, and that really affected the local labor market. And so um, we also had that experience of working in probably between the pandemic and, you know, the, the civil unrest in the city and in some of the toughest labor markets in the country uh, at that point. And, you know, from there, we just expanded uh, our platform and our feature set. We went next to uh, timekeeping and really built, we built our timekeeping system for distributed workforces. So, you know, people who have, might have multiple teams and multiple plants or multiple DCs. And we wanted to make it so that they just had a very modern mobile interface for keeping track of all the workers and communicating with them and really build an esprit de corps and really build transparency uh, to make it, you know, just a a, a modern a, sort of this very modern approach for for interacting uh, in that particular work environment, and then from there we just continued building more HR kind of functionality into the platform. So that that was really how we started with the business and 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 with our software. So who's the client? And I'm just trying to understand the business model a little bit, help our audience mm -hmm. understand it a little bit. So you mentioned Fortune 50 companies. I mean, are, are these Custom projects for individual companies? Is it a is it a software platform that that they use the same platform in different applications? Help me understand that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So um, our platform is it's HRIS and and workforce management. Uh, I think to put it you know in in general terms, but with this special focus on frontline workforce. Uh, so mobile first and you know location aware um, and all of the things that you would expect real time. And, you know, I believe very broadly in the trend of consumerization of HR software. Um, so it feels more like, you know, an online game or, you know, more of a modern messaging experience than kind of traditional, traditional software, traditional enterprise software. So most of our clients are, you know, purchasing licenses for their employees on the platform, and then they use it as part of their workforce management. Uh, we integrate to other systems if there are legacy systems that, you know, have to be maintained or have to be synced with. Um, and then if they want, they can also get fully credentialed employees from our marketplace. So we also have an employment marketplace and they can pull resources from that marketplace. 
And that also allows them, you know, a lot of people who have external resources, have internal resources, have a lot of paper and Excel that they use to kind of manage schedules and processes and rosters and things. Um, and we sort of do away with all of that because you can manage these blended teams just in the same software. Managing the blended teams, knowing where they are, yep. you know, at any given point in time, you know, obviously it's, it's, you said mobile first. So we're, you know, we're, we're using this on our smartphones primarily as far as the employee. Yep. And then just, is there a, a use case or, or, or so that in terms of the kinds of data and, or, you know, ROI, the customers, you know, in other words, what's the business case for them implementing it? One of the first ROIs that most of our clients realize is kind of a rationalization of the schedule. So we can link the roster with the warehouse management system, with the production systems, so that you get sort of productivity on the schedule. And you can use that to predict how many, you know, team members you need tomorrow, depending on the demand forecast for tomorrow or the production plan for tomorrow. Um, you can use it to really sort of avoid all of that sort of excess of, well, I better just have three more people come in because I'm not really sure how the day is going to end up. Uh, so most of our clients would say the first thing right out of the gate is they cut over time. Um, and, and, and also they're able to be a little bit more objective in terms of allowing overtime, right? Let's put more of the overtime on the truly productive employees, you know, versus somewhere else, or, you know, come up with the ideal roster that has some overtime and gets you the maximum uh, productivity. So it, it really gives them sort of next level planning uh, abilities in terms of the roster and, and and driving that through to productivity and overtime and, and other savings. You know, I should mention there's there's also we have a bunch of sort of time validation because everything is geofenced and, and geomarked. Um, you know, we're able to avoid time fraud or clarify situations where we're not sure if that employee was really in the right spot and, and those kinds of things. So, you know, not to have it big brother like, but there but there is that aspect. It's it's you know, it's it's real time. Everything is logged and auditable and, you know, just really helps with transparency. Well, and really, you know, to use a manufacturing analogy, it really kind of helps to automate, among other things, automate what we call the spaghetti diagram. So if anybody's ever done a, a lean event or a continuous improvement event and tracked within a manufacturing operation, for example, where people go or where material travels, and then you, you sit down and you look at these kind of crazy routes that things take physically through a manufacturing plant and say, oh, there's got to be a better way. What I'm hearing is as just one example, we can do that on a global basis with a workforce and say, are there ways of using our individuals more safely so that they have a, a you know a safer, safer work environment? Is there a way to use them uh, more efficiently so they don't feel like they're wasting their time? Is there a way to use them in a way that the job is more rewarding to them? So it really is in a lot of ways around the frontline workforce and then creating ROI for your clients in terms of, of cost savings that they can reinvest in business growth totally. and in other areas, if I'm understanding it right. Yeah, totally, totally. And, you know, remote team management is a lot easier than too. Um, you know, it doesn't, your supervisors don't have to be right there um, with, with a work group. Uh, they can manage multiple work groups across multiple, uh, you know, multiple facilities if, if that's what you need. You know, we've got micro distribution, micro manufacturing setups in some clients where, you know, they used to have one big facility. Yep. Now they have 20 small ones and just managing all the people flows. Yep. That's that's manufacturing moving closer to this, the point of consumption, by the way, which is going yeah. to continue to happen. Huge yep. trend. Yep. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So we really, we really built it 
already for that future. And that's, you know, that's where a lot of the workforce management, when we say frontline workforce management, that's that's really what we're talking about. Perfect. And in terms of markets, you mentioned, you know, drivers, Uber drivers, and so on. We talked about healthcare. Mm-hmm. Are there other markets that you see emerging in your space? Yeah, field engineering. You know, uh, we've seen, you know, and I think so many things happened with entry-level jobs in the pandemic, and, and a lot of people have just moved on, you know. Um, gosh, we, you know, had 100 laborers in this plant, and we couldn't get any for a year, so we automated it away, or we moved it to another part of the country, or, you know, whatever the case might be. As we look at those sort of changes, the new opportunities now are, you know, they're sort of the skills that are just above that. And so some of that comes with some additional training and helping, you know, our entry level guys understand, hey, man, you're just one certificate away from being able to do this other job that pays a lot better. And some of that is highly skilled individuals coming out of technical programs, coming out of, you know, engineering but now working with a whole distributed fleet of machinery. We kind of summarize that all. We just call it travel engineering, uh, field engineering. And uh, those jobs are really booming. They're booming in clean tech. They're booming in manufacturing. Uh, we're seeing more and more of that. And like I said, I think it's the the pandemic and this kind of rapid transition with a lot of people putting industrial robotics in in places that they had you know, kind of been holding off on. Well, and I think the other trend that's driving a lot of this is just the huge supply chain disruption. And you know, we've talked a lot on our on our podcast about you know the fact that there's a lot of spaces in our economy, logistics, distribution, manufacturing that really nobody ever put much thought in, right? I mean, you order your you place your order on Amazon, something shows up on my front, and when that works, it's awesome. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't work, and it's like, oh, I guess all these people that are making stuff and and shipping it all over the world, they actually do uh, have a role and make a difference in in our economy. And so I I almost say, in fact, I have said one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that we're starting to value different parts of the economy in certain ways. And one of the things that I'm just a huge believer is going to be driven by that, and, and, and I'm hearing the same thing from you, is this whole idea of, and I alluded to it a moment ago, manufacturing moving closer and closer to the point of consumption. And um, and But when you do that and you have a more disparate supply chain, a more disparate uh, manufacturing workforce, now we need to engage technology to be able to ensure that we understand what's happening, not just across a plant and where everything's just kind of in one building, but could be across the country and your technology is enabling us to do this. And it's, you know, I think as individuals are deciding where they want to work, the kinds of companies that they want to work in, um, the mission of that organization is becoming more and more important. And I know just in, in learning a little bit about Shift One and your background and the way you think about these things, you know, you're a mission-driven individual. And I want to take a moment to familiarize our audience with your company's mission statement and to make a couple connections. You need to talk about um, you know, being able to track the location of people or maybe what their activities are or, or help detect fraud and those kind of things. And some people might look at that and say it's it's big brother. And, and really you're more, you're still all about that that frontline worker in terms of the technology you're delivering. So for our audience's benefit, I'm just going to recite your your um, mission statement, at least in part, which is to inspire and develop the blue collar workforce of tomorrow, to inspire American workers to do their best work throughout their careers, to be for them the fastest way to get into the workforce, to upskill and to get ahead in any city of America. So your platform is really focused on the worker, on their experience, on getting them to really fulfilling careers. What is it that's so important about that to you? Yeah, I think, you know, it's personally important to me. And, you know, I did grow up working class and, and you know, I, I came from a from a, a very modest background. I had a 16-year-old single mom and I was an only child. The two of us really 
kind of grew up together and you have a very different relationship to to work and work ethic when um you know from two three four years old you're you're seeing the adult workforce and in the work environment I, I got dragged you know <laughs> to the restaurants my mom was waitressing at I was in the faculty lounge and and you know a professor's offices when she was putting herself through school it, very different kind of experience and so I think you know, what we're trying to do is give people better information, better, in some senses, advice, um, you know, based on sort of what's working for everybody else in this big community. We're trying to to form a global community of peers and, and mentors uh, around the work in and of itself. If people can form global groups around, you know, a certain you know, a uh, dairy item they like or something like that, uh, they can certainly form one around, uh, you know, a, a really rich, rewarding career and career path, like some of the ones we're talking about. So, you know, we think there's there's a lot there that, you know, we're just excited about how far this mission will take us and, and all of the opportunity to really impact millions of people. I love that story for a whole bunch of different reasons. I mean, you know, first of all, what a great personal success story for you to uh, some of those humble beginnings to now be a significant tech entrepreneur working around some of the most amazing technologies and, and Fortune 50 companies and others, um, you know, being able to rub elbows with those folks. I mean, it's just a tremendous success story. It does, at least to me, it's a reminder that that here in the United States and in as much as we're about securing the American dream for the next generation, it doesn't happen for everybody. And it certainly doesn't mean that certain people don't have bigger hurdles to get over than others do. That's certainly the truth, but, uh, but it can happen and it does happen. So that's a, that's a great example and a great story. And the other interesting aspect of that is how relatable I think that probably makes you to the people whose lives you're trying to change, right? You know, it's one thing for somebody that, that grew up in, 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 a, in an environment of wealth and, and what have you to be able to relate to, to others. And in, in your case, somebody that started, again, with those humble beginnings, rose to the levels that you have and, and can now relate to the experience of somebody that's on in a frontline position and the challenges that, that face them, I think probably makes you a really unique leader for your organization, both in terms of where you've been and where you are today and in terms of where the organization is going. So we've learned a lot, Jason, about, about Shift One, but I'd be curious, what's on the horizon? What's next for you? We're, you know, uh, adding new functionality to the platform all the time. Um, we have started to commercialize a bit our hiring automation functionality um, where organizations who, you know, are looking for advanced automation want to uh, be more successful with their internal hiring organizations and, and uh, you know, outcomes uh, can, can work with us there. That's, uh, you know, one of the major things on our roadmap this year. We're also uh, investing a great deal on the community features of our platform. Um, we want to make it so that workers will have a lot of value, um, regardless of you know their professional background and what their specific occupation is right now. But they'll they'll have a lot of value in building an employment history that we can verify for them, uh, and that that becomes portable. It's their property. It's not ours. It's not uh, property of one of their employers. Um, and that that can really follow them throughout their career as they build their career. And obviously, it'll help us to make better recommendations and to be able to support them better as the community member. Uh, so we really want that worker professional support to to become just part and parcel of our product this year. 
It's going to be fascinating to watch that that roll out, you know, just to that last point that you make. Uh, when we think about emerging technologies like digital badging, we talked a lot about certifications and credentialing here. And, and then really there's a benefit to the employee of being able to say, you know, here's my digital resume, if you will, and it's been certified or it's been validated. But to the employer as well, as somebody who, who hires a lot of, of people, does a lot of recruiting, talks to a lot of folks, um, you know, people can put anything on a resume and, and you know, 90% of us are, are really honest with what's on the resume and it may, might even be 99%, but whatever the number is there, you know, and, and we've, we've had them where uh, people just had things in their resumes that were totally fabricated. And, and here's a way for an employer, I would imagine as well, to to be able to validate and have the confidence that when somebody says they have an experience or they have a certain job history, work history, that that's, that that's yeah. accurate. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We've had, you know, I've just had some really, I think, profound personal experiences with um, the power of technology when it comes to selecting talent. One example would be sort of anyone in ride sharing who ran cities from time to time, we'd have special tasks. So, you know, my Las Vegas city team, hey, we're going to we're going to, you know, run helicopters this weekend in the app and you know, we want to do a couple thousand helicopter rides. Um, we're going to need very special drivers to sort of pick up customers and make sure that this is a really VIP experience. You know, let's go find 20 of the best drivers in the city or 50 of the best drivers in the city. It's really easy on our platform. You know, you've got thousands and thousands of data points and, you know, you've got in a city like Las Vegas, you've got something like 30,000 drivers, 40,000 drivers. If you pick the best 20 guys, they are just outstanding individuals, you know, and there's no resume, you know, this isn't paper, this isn't self-reported or subjective. Um, You can do it entirely driven on data. Um, And, you know, I think that's part and parcel of of where, where we go next. You know, we should be able to have a much better read. I mean, we're already having it in the early platform, um, but as our worker profiles get more and ro- more robust, um, you know, we'll just have that much of a deeper talent pool than we than we have already. Yeah, absolutely. To put that into perspective for our listeners, you know, you think is is somebody who uses Uber a lot, and you know, the one thing that always amazes me is, uh, you know, and it, it happens more in some of the larger cities. I think where you'll see people with five, ten, fifteen thousand trips, you know, drivers that have been on that kind of, you know, even more. And then you think about all the reviews and how, you know how many stars did they get, and you know, you get somebody with four point nine nine stars and they've done five thousand trips. I mean, you know, you've got a first class driver. And I never really thought about that, but from a an enterprise level, to be able to use that data. Data and determine who are our superstars without having to do an employee review, without having to sit down and ask other people in the company, how's this person doing? It's all there and it's all there in real time. I mean, right, that's just right. a fascinating observation. Well, exactly. In a manufacturing environment, imagine you had an hourly productivity stat for an employee for the last 7,000 hours. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, exactly. uh, you know, and and when you, when you have that kind of visibility in, in a really large a really large worker pool it, it you know you it's the the cream rises to the top it's kind of amazing Absolutely. Well, and, and then you think about, you know, to your point on the manufacturing side, if you're building a, a world-class workforce and having all that data available to you, that's important. But it's also important to the employee as well, right? To have a, should be anyway, to have a high rating. And that's really, you know, one of the challenges if, you know, if I think back on my 
25 years in manufacturing where, you know, every once in a while you get somebody that said, you know, I feel like I'm doing all this stuff, but it's not recognized or it's not appreciated. And, and then to be able to look back in the data and say, hey, maybe we have overlooked that person because they do have a rating of, of exits. You know, there's benefits kind of going back to your mission. There's certainly benefits to the employer of having this data and being able to use it. But for those team members, whether it's an Uber driver, whether it's somebody who's leasing a VRBO, whatever it is, to be able to have that data available in real time to say, yeah, this is really a gold star person. There's there's tremendous value there as we look, you know, to the future of growing enterprises, of growing companies and organizations, into the the future of HR technology. I know a lot of times we hear about, and it's hard for everybody to stay updated in this day and age, but we hear about some of this outdated um, HR technology or platforms that folks are using. Um, you know, let's say I'm a vice president of human resources. I'm an HR coordinator, an HR manager in a small, mid-size, even a Fortune 500 or Fortune 50 manufacturing company. You know, with all the things that you're saying and seeing in terms of HR technology, HR data, and the changing nature of the workforce, what's your one piece of advice for somebody in a role like that as they look to the future? I think it's it's hugely important that um, that you you have an objective way to measure your workforce. And I think it's hugely important that it is tied to further advancement. I, I think we're just, we're living in a period as we were talking, you know, coming out of the pandemic, they're just going to be, the the, the first levels of the career ladder are going to be, they're going to be weaker. They're not going to be as broad a spot that can support as many people as they used to. So, you know, you're really going to have to help people get ahead quickly, get those critical skills, get started in higher level jobs and you know, I'm not bashful. I'm biased about that. I think a higher skilled job is a better job. I've certainly worked on skilled, you know, basic labor jobs. Most people that are working them uh, would like better working conditions, would like more pay, better hours. Um, so that's the path. And I think, you know, just as as an HR leader, just just thinking through sort of that that change management and, and given that so many things are accelerating these days, not just automating away a line, but, you know, really, how do I make sure that this line is properly supported, that I have the right to, not that you just, you know, move the problem and two years from now, you can't find the robotics maintenance right. technicians to keep your line up. So Absolutely. these are, these are, I think, the challenges we're, we're dealing with uh, already and that are just going to be more pronounced in the next year or two. And you use a manufacturing analogy in terms of moving a production line, automating a production line. And certainly we spend a lot of time in that space of, you know, you're exactly right. If we automate the process and there's nobody there to maintain it, or I don't have anybody to lead the change management, you know, I really haven't improved my business. I've just moved my organization. I've just moved that problem. That's true in manufacturing, but it's really true across the economy. I mean, we talk a lot about you know, automation of back office. And we see more and more organizations using platforms like UiPath to automate things that in the past we had um, we had individuals doing. And so it's not just the automation of the manufacturing sector, but it's really automation across our economy, whether that's retail, whether that's fast food, whether that's, you know, office work, which to your point really changes that base level of the workforce in a lot of ways, where my guess is that opportunities for people that have very, very few skills are going to become even fewer and further between. And at the same time, opportunities for those with the ability to to learn, to gain skills, to troubleshoot, to integrate different technologies, that's where the opportunities are going to be. Um, and so as we think about an HR manager, HR coordinator, HR VP that's looking to the future, it's how do you create that robustness in that career pathway so you can take somebody maybe with fewer skills that wouldn't necessarily have 
a starting role in your organization, but you have no choice but to upskill them into an area where they can add value because the people that can add value are so few and far between. It's going to be really fascinating to watch that as it goes out. Absolutely. And, you know, just to add, I think, you know, obviously implications for community colleges, for technical schools, for four-year institutions, which probably, you know, not coincidentally is another part of the workforce that's incredibly crunched. It is, Uh, for sure. The adjunct professor market is off the charts out of whack. And, you know, so there's, you know, I think, I think those we've been saying would be the areas that I'd, that that would be keeping me up. Uh, They're certainly keeping me up in my role. Sure. Keeping you up and finding ways to to capitalize on the opportunities and to make the workforce opportunities uh, for those frontline workers even better. So we talked about the the advice you would have for the HR folks on the corporate side. If I'm a frontline worker, if I'm somebody getting into the workforce already in the workforce, um, you know, somebody that is maybe in the skilled trades now or aspiring to be in a role like that, from your vantage point with all the data that you have available to you, Jason, and all the different organizations that you engage with, what's your advice for that person that's maybe on the front line or, or aspiring to uh, to move up the corporate ladder from a um, skilled worker standpoint? Yeah. What's your advice for them? Yeah, I, I love that question. And, you know, very, very close to my heart. For sure. Um, we have this coaching and in one way or another, career coaching is part of our, our platform and in our environment. You know, I think of it as I think maybe the metaphor is is a train and you you sort of you're on a particular train, you're in a particular job and it's going to the doors are going to open at different next stations. Those are your next career opportunities. And I think planning conversations with people you trust, with peers, with mentors about the career path that you're on. and you know. I think being open to other places you might go um, and finding information, I mean, certainly begins with searching on the internet, but, um, you know, companies like mine, companies like, you know, local training institutes um, and, you know, as we said, two-year, four-year institutions can really help with kind of deciding what other opportunities or even just understanding, getting a better picture of the opportunities that might be out there. And then I think it's, you know, for everyone, it's a little bit of, reading the tea leaves, but if you're looking at sort of the top 20, 30 frontline job classes in the country, they have really, really strong, you know, surplus demand for like the next 10 years easily. So it's really hard to make a bad career decision there among those. That's what I tell a lot of young people when we talk about it is that, you know, everybody, they all obsess, you know, you think about somebody leaving high school and whether I'm going to go into the military or direct to workforce, or, you know, I'm going to go to a technical or community college, or I'm going to go on to a four-year institution, any and all of which are great decisions, depending on who you're, how you're wired and what you want to do with your, with your life. I, I have similar advice, which is, you know, just pick a path, right? There is no perfect answer. Pick one of them and get on it. And then I love your train analogy. If I can add to it, the, uh, you know, being aware that the doors are going to be going to open and also knowing when they open, right? There's so many opportunities within careers to to be able to take a new route or to, to take advantage of an opportunity if you're open to them. We love people who are disrupting the world of work. We love people who are disrupting the world of technical education. I would argue that you're doing both of those in your work at Shift One. Jason Radisson, the founder and the chief executive officer of Shift One, has been our guest with us here on the Tech Ed Podcast. Really fascinating conversation, Jason. Thanks so much for coming on. Matt, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. 
New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.